The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there have been 246 mass shootings this year. That means more shootings than days. In 2022, 33 of those mass shootings have taken place since the rampage at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, left 19 children and two teachers dead on May 24th. Not a single week in 2022 has passed without a mass shooting. As you may have noticed, a staggering 98% of mass shootings have been committed by men. According to the Violence Project, the nonpartisan research group that tracks U.S. mass shootings since 1966. The question, why are mass shootings primarily committed by men, is the one we are going to raise with our guest today, Dr. Frank T. McAndrew, who will draw upon his research and additional findings on gender, aggression, and violence to offer us some answers. Dr. Frank McAndrew is a returning guest to Psych Up Live. He is the Cornelia H. Dudley Professor of Psychology at Knox College and an elected fellow of several professional organizations, including the Association for Psychological Science. Frank is an evolutionary social psychologist whose research is guided by the simple desire to make sense of everyday life. His research has appeared in dozens of scientific journals, and he's written a wide range of of articles for news outlets, including Time Magazine, The Washington Post, The New Republic, The Guardian. His research has also been featured in media outlets, NPR, the BBC, CNN, NBC's Today Show. Frank is a frequent guest on TV and radio and has lectured throughout the United States as well as other countries, ranging alphabetically from Denmark to Tanzania. Dr. Frank McAndrew, it is my pleasure to welcome you back to Psych Up Live. Well, and it's my greater pleasure to be here again. Thank you, Suzanne. Okay. So the question we're raising is why are mass shooters primarily men? Well, uh, let's start by acknowledging that violence, physical violence of all sorts, is primarily committed by men, including your run-of-the-mill homicides. But it's even more true for mass shootings than for other things. And so I guess what I would like to do is discuss something called precarious manhood, which is really the thing I think that's underlying, especially the mass shootings, and then talk a little bit about how men have evolved to be this way. But first, here's what precarious manhood is all about. Um, manhood, however your culture might define it, um, for a man is a status that must be continually earned. It's not like you reach some milestone or achieve something and, aha, I'm a man and I can kind of rest on my laurels for the rest of my life. 
uh, your self-worth and being a feeling like a real man is something that constantly gets challenged. And you have to keep meeting those challenges over and over again. And it can easily be lost. You always feel like you've got to prove yourself. When I talk about this in my classes, the men in my class immediately understand what I'm talking about. I see all kinds of little smirks and nods. And um, when I ask the women if there's an equivalent, is there something that might make you not feel like a real woman, there's much more confusion and disagreement about whether that's a thing or not. So there seems to be a real difference there. And I think the roots of this um, go back to our prehistoric past where, uh, and this is especially about young men, and young men are primarily who the mass shooters are. If you think about the groups that we evolved in prehistorically, you were in this small tribe of people, maybe there was 150 to 200 people there, and those teen years and young adult years were the time at which you sorted yourself out in the status hierarchy. There was this competition to show who was going to be the best warrior and the best hunter, and it mattered a lot because... In those societies, the guys on the top, the powerful men, always had access to the most mates and the most desirable mates and the most powerful political allies. So it really was, from an evolutionary point of view, a life and death struggle for status at that time of life. And it's no coincidence that that's the time of life that testosterone peaks in men. And we'll talk about this a little bit later. But um, people often think of testosterone as something that's all about sex. It is related to sex, but it's primarily the tool that prepares men to compete with other men. And it is right around the age of 18, 19, 20, where it's absolutely at its peak. And the reason this competition was so ruthless was once your position was set, that was pretty much it. You weren't going to be able to move somewhere, uh, go off to another tribe very easily anyway. And so if you were a loser at 18, by the time 40 rolled around, you weren't suddenly going to rise to prominence. So men were sort of programmed to compete, 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 and it's all about status, respect, getting the attention of other people. Hmm. So is this what you call the challenge hypothesis, Frank? The challenge hypothesis is a kind of a subset of that. Uh, the challenge hypothesis states that when a man perceives that there's some threat to his status, or if competition with another man is about to happen, he gets a spike in testosterone. Now, this spike in testosterone occurs to help him meet the challenge, whatever it might be. Uh, and sometimes that challenge is a physical violence thing uh, where you're going to have to engage in physical combat with another man. So right before you go into battle or right before you have some sort of um, intense physical competition, that spike in testosterone uh, will help you. But it also happens in situations where men are simply in competition with other men for some kind of status or recognition like you would see in modern society where it's not all about physical stuff. So the challenge hypothesis simply says that males experience this testosterone rush to enable them to compete. And it isn't just a human thing. You see this in many other species of animals as well. So in the, in the early, let's say, uh, early tribes, etc., there is, would you say, um, those who had the ability strength-wise 
uh, look-wise, capacity-wise, they dominated and they were able to choose the, the most desirable mate, etc. But do you think they were also more violent? Because the question that keeps popping up in the back of my head is, when we look at the backgrounds of mass shooters, they generally were not the quarterback or the valedictorian. They, no, that's right. You know, so they, they, they suffered a failure to be on the top of the pack. Not, you know, not the desirable um, young man everybody wants to be or everyone wants to be his friend. So does it prompt them to more violence because they are not ever able to get into a better position? Yes. And the dominant male, you know, in the old days, of course, physical formidability was huge. If you were bigger and stronger and faster than the other men, uh, you were going to be kind of a fearsome person to deal with. But that doesn't mean that that person went around mindlessly attacking people and being violent because he didn't have to. Other people deferred to him. Uh, they understood that he was higher in the pecking order than they were. And this feeling of dominance for a male, it's intoxicating. It's very satisfying. It's very rewarding. But the lack of that, if you're the underling who's really laughed at and bullied and you're on the outskirts, this is a crushing feeling of humiliation. And so you're right, Suzanne, the mass shooters that we see are not usually the captain of the football team or the president of the student body. But when you hear the news reports about them, you hear the same words over and over again, loner, bullied, quiet, on the outskirts. And um, when these men feel hopeless, this act of mass shooting becomes a final statement to show people that you are, in fact, someone to be feared and somebody to be reckoned with. Mm -hmm. It starts to make sense, the whole profile, in terms of finding others online who you can copycat or be... Uh, or sort of show off that what you plan to do, even if it's in a somewhat chaotic um, way. Um, it, would you say in some way the humiliation of being one down fuels a sense of revenge that, that also fuels the violence? Well, it fuels all kinds of negative emotions. You feel envy, you feel rage, you feel despair, and this combined with high testosterone levels, uh, creates a very toxic mix. I do think it plays out a little differently, though, depending on what the motive behind the mass shooting is. Something that I don't see people talking about very much is the difference between the mass shooters that are driven by some sort of ideology versus those that seem to be these lone wolves that are attacking schools and other things in their community. So if you wanted me to talk about that a little bit, I, I could pursue that. Uh, I think in both cases, the origin of it is the same. You have a marginalized young man who doesn't feel like he's getting the respect that he deserves. He doesn't feel like a person of influence. He just doesn't feel high in status or important. The lone wolf shooter, uh, just like we saw in Uvalde, that would be a good example, mm -hmm. is the person who pretty much stays in their own community 
and they return to the places where they felt disrespected. They go back to the school where they felt like a loser. They go back to the workplace where people treated them badly, and they make a public display. I will show you. You're going to be sorry. Maybe I can't improve my lot in life, but I can make you suffer and even the playing field that way. Now, I'm making it sound like it's a much more rational, conscious process than it is. These guys are just driven by blind emotion and rage. Mm -hmm. Now, the ideology shooter, it's the same idea. They feel kind of loose uh, at loose ends. They're marginalized. They don't feel respected or admired. But they find a community of people who care about something. And this might be the first time in their life that they find a community that agrees with them, and it's somebody they can show off for, somebody that will applaud what they do. And so the shooter who traveled to Buffalo to kill African Americans um, had this community of white supremacists that he was showing off for. So these kinds of shooters don't tend to stay in their own community. They travel to shopping malls or synagogues or wherever they need to go to find large numbers of people that their community doesn't approve of. The end result is the same in either case, but I think the dynamics of the two situations are are pretty different. I I agree, and I love that you made the comparison for all of us, because as you say, the shooters are rather desperate, and they're going back, the school shooters, they're going back to the schools. The others, when, when you think of people who have been marginalized themselves or who have found no way to lift themselves in the crowd as males, they're, I mean, what, one of the things tied to humiliation is a sense of being isolated out of the tribe. And so to find a new tribe that hates as much as you do um, is an answer. And the fact that violence is connected with it is, is certainly, I'm, I, I'm so struck with what you're saying, part of also being that group that wants to violate a particular other identified group. Yeah, and you want notoriety, and there's an interesting difference that you also don't hear people mention very often. When you get the lone wolf school shooter who stays in their own community or they're going back to a workplace where they got fired or something, they don't have any plans of surviving that attack. They almost always kill themselves if they're not killed by the police before that. Mm-hmm. But you'll notice when mass shooters do survive, they're often people like the Buffalo shooter or like Dylan Roof, who uh, killed the African-American people in the church in South Carolina. Um, they are willing to surrender themselves to police after they've committed the act because now they're going to be a celebrity. There is going to be a group of people out there uh, who admire them and talk about them. And so they're more willing to um, go to jail for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, it's so important what you're saying, because, you know, having looked at school shooters lately a lot, they don't have an escape plan. It's really also very much a desire to die as well as a desire to kill. But I I like what you're saying about the, the desperate need for notoriety and, a guilt, and, and guilt. And that's one of the reasons I think, Frank, more and more, um, I know the the folks in the violent project have pushed the need not to provide notoriety to our mass shooters because that's the need that perpetuates behavior. Yeah, but it, it does get hard in the world of social media, right? You can um, 
withhold their identity from, you know, national news or uh, network news. But there's always going to be a Facebook group or a Twitter group yep. that is going to, you know, give that person some publicity. It's really hard to plug all the leaks. Well, we got to take a break. When we come back, I want our listeners to know um, that Dr. McAndrews is going to drive a very fascinating study that takes into account testosterone in a clinic. It's an experimental test of the mutational hypothesis. What do you hear what unfolded in a research in research with 30 college male students? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The Soul Connection with Dr. K hosts a forum of expert guests that showcase popular topics that can impact the soul. Weekly, Our Soul Doctor connects with authors, medical professionals, and leaders that share expertise and testimonials. Check out our growing community on site at soulconnectionusa.com. Tune in to Feed the Soul Live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time, or listen on your time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Do you know that over 70% of people with disabilities are not counted in the workforce with twice the unemployment rate of the non-disabled? Join Joyce Bender, CEO of Bender Consulting Services and a disability leader as she talks about best practices and newest trends in disability employment on Disability Matters. As a person living with epilepsy and hearing loss, Joyce is an international advocate for disability employment. Tune in on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Frank McAndrews. He's the Cornelia H. Dudley Professor of Psychology at Knox College. And he's speaking to us about the reality that 98% of mass shooters are male and we're asking him why, and he's really offering us some fascinating information. In this segment, I asked um, Frank if he would talk about a particular research um, program, uh, research 
um, experiment that he did with college students that involved, well, I'll let, I'll let Frank tell you. Go ahead, Frank. Tell us about this very interesting Sure. Story. And uh, in all fairness, um, the person who took the lead on this study was one of our students named Jennifer Kleinsmith. What? And she worked with uh, myself and one of my colleagues, Tim Kasser, on this study. So I don't want to hog the glory and pretend like uh, this was all mine because I was just part of a team. But we were interested in the question of what does actually handling a weapon do to young men? Does it have any biological effects? And if so, does that lead to any sort of behavioral effects? And so one of the things we did was to have um, participants in our study committed to the laboratory, and they were randomly assigned to one of two conditions, uh, where they were either going to be handling and looking at a diagram of the um, one of two objects. One was um, a handgun, and it wasn't a real handgun, but it was an exact replica. You couldn't really tell the difference between the real thing and what we were using. And the other half were going to uh, use a mousetrap game, which I think many of your listeners will be familiar with from their own childhood. It's been around forever, right. but it's a kind of an apparatus where you put a lot of pieces together, and the goal is to trap mice at the end. And so they were handling one of these things, and then they were supposed to write out instructions to someone else about how to assemble them. But in the meantime, they were tasting a little cup of water that had some hot sauce in it. And the cover story, I won't get into all of the boring details, but basically we were interested in how uh, taste sensations and sensory stimulation might influence a person's ability to pay attention on a task like this. That's and so... That's what they, they were, were taking right. this. They were told. Me. I'm sorry. Hello? They were, Frank, they were told that that's what you were studying, but in actuality, you were studying something else, right? Correct, yes. This was just a cover story uh, to have the procedure make sense. What we were really studying is would the handling of the gun as opposed to the mousetrap game have any biological impact on the students? And would that translate into behavior? So after they were handling this um, instrument, whichever one it was, uh, we took a saliva sample. And I forgot to mention, we did this ahead of time, too. So we took a saliva sample before the task to measure what their testosterone levels were. And then we took another uh, sample of their saliva after they were done handling the gun or the mousetrap game to see if the testosterone level had changed. And then they were told, well, uh, we're going to get set up for the next participant who's going to come in, and we'll let you put the hot sauce into the water for that person. So our dependent variable here would be, how much hot sauce did they put into the water? Because the more you put in there, the more unpleasant it's going to be for the next person. Uh, and this was sort of our stand-in measure for aggression. Uh, and what we found was pretty straightforward. The guys who handled the guns had testosterone levels that shot up much higher, significantly higher, than the guys who handled the mousetrap game. And when a guy's testosterone levels did increase dramatically, that caused them to put more hot sauce into the water. So the gun triggered the increase in testosterone, and the increase in testosterone triggered the so-called aggressive behavior. It was so interesting, and I think one of the 
is, is this a final piece when you finally told them all, well, this was really just an experiment and no one was really going to drink the water with the hot sauce in it. Those who had put the most hot sauce in it were actually disappointed. No one was going to drink it. Yes, I'm glad you uh, remember that part because that was not something that we had planned to measure at all in the experiment. But it's something that we did notice when we would tell the guys that, okay, uh, here's what this was all about. You know, nobody's really going to drink this thing. The guys who had uh, handled the gun were much more likely to, oh, man, I thought that, you know, they, they were disappointed that they weren't going to have the effect that they wanted on somebody else. So tell me about um, understand the handling of a gun. We're talking about mass shootings, and you just said in this, this well, just the handling, I think it was a pellet gun that looked just like an automatic Desert uh, Eagle handgun or something. You said yep. just this handling and writing directions for using it had a significant impact on increase in testosterone and increase in a measure of um, aggressiveness. So we have to, it leaves you thinking the availability of guns in this country and the handling of guns must certainly play a part in our mass shooters' behavior. Yes, and this is especially true for mass shooters who. Um, don't use guns a lot or are not widely experienced with the guns because, um, well, this uh, goes back to the challenge hypothesis that we talked about. Um, if a man perceives that some sort of combat or competition with another male is imminent, his testosterone levels go up. So before an athletic competition, for example, um, testosterone levels increase. And guys who win and get a testosterone rush. Uh, I was a high school and college wrestler back in the last century, and there's nothing like that feeling of winning and physically dominating another male. But the flip side of that is on the losing end, there's this testosterone drop that's highly unpleasant. Handling a gun is sort of a, a signal for some kind of impending combat. That you know, automatic handgun is really only used for one thing, and if you're handling that, that's signaling to you that uh, something's going to happen here. Even if you consciously know that's not the case, the effect is the same. And uh, there have been some other studies that indicate that one of the reasons guys like shooting guns is shooting guns actually does increase testosterone levels, and it's fun. It's exciting. Your arousal levels go up, and the bigger and stronger the gun is, the bigger the rush is. And um, one of very telling comment was, I uh, always go back to the example of Elliot Roger. He was a college student in Santa Barbara, California, who went on a shooting spree, uh, killing primarily young women because he had felt ignored by them and felt like a loser. But he went out and picked up a handgun. And um, a direct quote from him was, he went, after I picked up the handgun, I brought it back to my room and I felt a new sense of power. Who's the alpha male now, bitches? So just having the gun in his hand made him feel more dominant. So for these mass shooter guys who feel like losers, picking up this military weapon in some ways may help give them the guts to do the thing that they're thinking about doing. Well, you know, Michael Anestes did a book on suicide and guns, the American epidemic. And one of the things that he adds to our discussion is that 
you can have um, self-hate. You can have the sense that nobody cares. It doesn't matter if I live or die. You can have that moment where I'm in intolerable psychic pain. But neither of those factors guarantee death by suicide until you bring a gun into the picture. And so, you know, in, he, he quotes a study in which there was a certain percentage of suicide behavior in Israeli soldiers who always were able to bring young Israeli soldiers their guns home on the weekend. As soon as that was banned and guns could not be brought home, the suicide rate dropped 40%. So it's an interesting thing because this is so powerful, your findings and even just what you just shared, that the guns add a factor that does that, that exacerbates the aggressiveness in testosterone, but it also introduces lethality into the picture. Yeah, it sure does. And that was fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. I wasn't familiar with that research. Uh, but yes, it makes sense that with the gun in your hand, you've got more of a sense of power and control. And this is one thing you can control if you're feeling helpless everywhere else. So yes, very, very interesting. Yeah. So now let's, let's add to uh, uh, the picture that we're portraying here is you described something in your writing called the young male syndrome. Let's, and maybe let's talk about that. Why younger men? Well, the, uh, we've known about the young male syndrome for a very long time, and everybody understands this. Whenever um, you think of reckless, daredevil, foolish behavior, you right away picture a young man. The um, Darwin Awards that are given every year posthumously to uh, the individual who has died the previous year in the most foolish way, uh, the winners are almost always young men. Those rare occasions where a young woman has received the award, it's almost always because she was talked into doing something by a young man uh, that was foolish. And this is kind of a side effect of that need to show off, be reckless, uh, not necessarily violent, but to take risks. Because in a perverse sort of way, what the male is signaling to others is the quality of genes. Look, if I can do this incredibly risky thing and survive it, I'm a pretty special guy. I've got some pretty good genes. And this advertises um, something about the person that may be attractive to others. There's also a you know, pardon the expression, but somebody else has called it the crazy bastard hypothesis to describe guys who have a reputation for this. Uh, and at first glance, it doesn't seem like it would be very adaptive, right? This guy that is doing all these foolish things that might end up killing himself. He doesn't seem to have any regard for his own well-being. But think about um, our tribal days and you're about to go into battle against a neighboring village. Would you like to have that crazy bastard as one of your allies or as one of your enemies? And I think the answer is pretty clear. And so um, if you can do this sort of thing and survive it, then, um, yeah, you're, you're signaling something about yourself. So the young male syndrome is this big bump in deaths. Uh, and and violent behavior among young males. So if, if you look at murder rates, you're much more likely to be murdered if you're male, especially if you're a young male. You're much more likely to be a murderer if you're a male or a young male. And if you look at death from just about any sort of reckless activity, uh, drunk driving, um, 
you know, risky extreme sports. Uh, males are all over the place uh, compared to females. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I can think back to college days where there would be a fraternity brother in, in, in a fraternity who was the crazy bastard who would do crazy things. And yeah, he had a lot, right. of, a lot of um, focus because people say, oh, what do he do now? Or, you know what he did there? Or he, he took his car on the snow slope. You know, crazy, crazy things. But some there's a desperation there. The difference with that guy, let's say, and the young men who kill others and take their own lives or, or the mass shooter um, at the Buffalo store, there's that ship. There's something different about someone who'll take a risk for attention and someone who'll kill. Yeah, and I think the, the, when you're seeing them taking the risks for attention, that's the process of sorting out status. The uh, going out and killing people are the people who've determined that they've already become losers in this competition. Yes. Yes, but um, but the young male, we're, we're, everybody in a very common sense way understands that. If you're walking down a dark city street late at night alone, and somebody is coming in the other direction toward you, you're not worried about it so much if it's a 75 year old man or if it's a woman, but if it's a young male, you're immediately on your guard because we all understand the volatility of guys at that age. Yes. Yes, it's a definite stereotype, but it has some credibility to it for sure. So let's talk about, uh, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, let's even look closer at the male-female difference, because we do have women who could be so vicious, even in a less direct form, in an indirect way, that they actually create nightmares for other women. Um, but they're not as lethal. So when we come back, we're going to look a little closer at the differences and the role of humiliation. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. With he- we're here with Dr. Frank McAndrews, who's the Cornelia Dudley Professor of Psychology at Knox College. And he's really answering the question with many, many interesting variables. Why 98% of our mass shooters are men? Stay with us. More to come. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. It's time to get real, discover who you are, and get the tools to navigate your life. It's time to rock your midlife with Dr. Ellen Albertson, the Midlife Whisperer. Your midlife roadmap is the blueprint you need to roll with change, transform yourself, and create a fabulous second adulthood. Get answers and solutions for whatever you're up against and transform problems into opportunities. Make your next life chapter your best chapter with Rock Your Midlife every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. 
But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Frank McAndrews, the Cornelia H. Dudley, professor of psychology at Knox College, and he's an evolutionary social psychologist, and he's been just answering our questions in such a fascinating way. So the question I'm raising now, Frank, is I have to say that I think women in their own way are can be pretty violent or rather aggressive. They just do it in different ways, but I... Um, they, we don't have too many women shooters, that's for sure. But you hear about you'll hear about uh, a teenage group of girls tormenting another young girl because sometimes I've worked on issues like suicide with young people, and it's a young girl who's just being harassed online to the point where she doesn't want to live anymore because it's going viral, and ha- as she says, we'll never escape it. You can never get rid of it. So let's let's compare for a minute our teen or young adult, male and female, in terms of aggression. Sure. And in defense of my own gender, uh, we've been talking about the you know violence of men. Uh, I, I men and women certainly both behave aggressively. They just have different styles. It's not like one is nicer or better than the other. And that, again, goes back to our, our roots. Um, men competed with each other in a direct physical way for status in the group, and that's how they achieved their positions of dominance. Uh, competition among women was much more subtle uh, in these early tribal societies, as far as we can tell. Many of the women had been kidnapped or bought or given uh, to this new group from another group. That was something that happened very commonly. And so you often had women who were thrown together and ripped away from their old support networks. They're no longer with their mothers and their siblings and their cousins. They're in with a bunch of strange new women. And so there's this um, desperate need to sort out who you can trust and who you can't, who's going to be a reliable ally and who's going to stab you in the back, and forming coalitions with other women that will help you get by. And so for women, aggression became not a direct physical head-to-head kind of competition. It became more of a social thing. It's usually referred to as relational aggression or sometimes indirect aggression. The goal is really to ostracize your rivals from your social group and to make it hard for them to form their own social group. And so you 
spread gossip about them. He tried to destroy their reputation. And what you were describing, Suzanne, about suicidal young girls uh, is absolutely true. There are countless examples of it. One that uh, comes to mind very quickly for me is there was a young girl named Phoebe Prince in 2010. She was 15 years old, and she hanged herself in her family's apartment in South Hadley, Massachusetts. Uh, and this was after a long campaign of taunting, gossip, and bullying by other teens. She had moved there from Ireland, and she was sort of pretty. And so um, the other girls saw her as a threat especially after she had a brief romantic fling with the boyfriend of one of her principal tormentors. And so she was essentially hounded into suicide because she found it completely impossible to form any sort of connection. So the mean girl stereotype is more than just a stereotype. Uh, women do, in fact, get very vicious. And uh, I can only speak from what I've heard from others since I'm not a woman. But any of you who've been through junior high school as a female, I think, know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes. And it, in fact, if we look if we compare that setting to other settings, like we talk about, um, females are not going to fight with males in the middle school, but they're going to fight with other women. And the mm -hmm. boys fight generally with other boys. Um, but the women can, can get very vicious um, in terms of making someone's life miserable. And the new girl is often the target because, as you say, and that seems like it could go back to early primitive, you know, groupings where the new girl is the threat, the new female is the threat. Sure, um, she's exotic. So one of the things that um, I thought was so interesting is in terms of male-female differences, it is the case that men are more likely to be killed by other men women are always more likely to be killed by other men, usually husbands or boyfriends. So, right. you know, the ultimate partner violence is a very big threat for women. Yes, and women are always at physical risk uh, in any kind of encounter with males. And so when there's a bump in the murder rates of young men at that young age, there's a slight uptick in murder rates for women at that age, too, uh, primarily because of their association with young men. Okay, so let's let's move on to the question of mental health and gun violence and mass shootings. And I mentioned to um, Dr. Andrews at the break that many people have been saying when you read the paper that uh, there, when there's a tendency to dismiss every other possible variable and just consider, well, this is a crazy kid. This is just, a, you know, this kid's got a problem. This kid's bipolar. This kid's um, um, a borderline personnel. Whatever it is, what that does is dismiss the consideration of other lethal factors. But it also, in some way, stereotypes, marginalizes, and puts blame on a population that may not may not be involved as mass shooters, and if if they are, that may be one of many variables. What do you think about this, Frank? Well, I yeah, I, I tend not to put a whole lot of trust in the mental health explanation for mass shooters. I think this is usually trotted out by politicians who don't want to talk about guns, or it's trotted out by people who find it so incomprehensible that anybody could kill a bunch of other people that they don't know, that these people must be crazy. And so they just jump to the conclusion 
that they must be mentally ill. But uh, you're a clinical psychologist yourself, so you certainly are well aware that hardly any mentally ill people become violent, and they certainly don't become mass shooters. And most of the mass shooters that we've been talking about, especially the ones driven by ideology to go and uh, kill people of a certain group, are not mentally ill in the way that we usually use the term. They're not out of touch with reality. They understand the implications of the behavior that they're engaging in, but they do it anyway. So, I'm, I mean, I'm all in favor of increasing support for mental health in, in our uh, nation, and I'm certainly not going to object to that. But if you're doing that with the intention of getting rid of mass shootings, I just think you're barking up the wrong tree. I agree. It's an interesting thing in their book, The Violence Project, with Julian Peterson and James um, Densley. They had the opportunity to look closely at, oh, I think it's um, 172 mass shooters. Um, they started it from the date 1966. And it was interesting, Frank, that one of the things they said that I think we alluded to is even if somebody has had a history of rejection, usually they said that there was a crisis period that precedes the actual mass shooting or the school shooting. That is, all of a sudden, um, the one friend they had is no longer a friend or something happens to that person or they lose a parent, or there's nowhere else for them to live, or but there's one more rejection that just flips the switch. Um, do you find that to be true, that if there's a crisis that builds up for, for the mass shooter or the school shooter that really mobilizes the um, lethal killing? Well, I will uh, qualify what I'm about to say by admitting that I haven't studied enough mass shooters in that kind of detail to be able to confidently say uh, how many of them acted out after the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. But it certainly sounds correct. I don't think very many people who have had a normal, fairly happy, satisfying life and then suddenly experience some rejection or crisis immediately go out and become a mass shooter. But I do think an individual who has a long history of that and has struggled with feeling marginalized all along finally has one more episode that just pushes them over the edge. So I would not be surprised if that is the case. But I can't say for certain that I have the data to say that for sure. The, the desperation to be known that you spoke about before uh, the notoriety or to be known by the group who hate another group and for which you're going to d kill someone. Um, one thing that I read about in this, in the violent project is when they asked some who had not died or who were in prison for a mass shooting or, or a school shooting, were they, were they interested in being interviewed? They were. And mm -hmm. they were, they were interested in being known as more than a mass shooter. Now, that's really interesting when we think some want to die and um, they suggest that, we, you know, people go online for the blueprint. And Waco was the, was the blueprint, you know, for Columbine. And Columbine's the, even in what they wear as school shooters, um, in their behavior, but when they haven't died and you look closely at the, these young men who have attempted or who have actually killed, 
there's a side of them that really is quite desperate, is as desperate mm-hmm. as they are vicious, you know? And I think, our, I think the United States is a society that really magnifies these tendencies. We're, we're a very hyper-competitive, uh, individualistic society that puts a premium on being somebody. Just look at the things that we use for entertainment. Uh, the success of these shows like America's Got Talent and all kinds of reality TV where people are competing with each other. We watch these shows and these people become celebrities. When you talk to uh, really young uh, kids now, uh, preteens and early teens, when you ask them what they want to be when they grow up, they'll often say a YouTube star because they live in a world where these ordinary people have started YouTube channels and become celebrities. And so we have this thirst for just having people know who we are and paying attention to us. And that takes an ugly turn with these marginalized young men we've been talking about. But I think we live in a society that prizes that. And social media is going to really feed the beast because you can log on to any social media network you're in and see all of these pictures of successful, happy people who other people are congratulating for one thing or another. And you can start feeling pretty bad about yourself if you spend too much time on there looking at that. I know I do. Well, there's such an exhibitionism. Exhibitionism is rewarded by how many people are on your Twitter or how many people are clicking you. And so, you know, um, the average success of, of what someone can do, whether they're in high school or college or whatever, pales in face of that. And, and so I agree. I think the culture is very, very difficult. One thing that your research, or I think you mentioned in one of your papers that I wanted to bring up is that is, is this true? With the challenge hypothesis, we're seeing the challenge hypothesis might push certainly the level of testosterone and the tendency toward aggression, particularly in men who are more desperate, because I was so interested when I read that men with prestige display lower levels of testosterone and less tendency to aggression. What do you think that refers to? It's really, it's easy to think about testosterone levels as the thing that matters and that the guy walking around with more testosterone is going to be more violent than the guy who isn't. It's really about the change in testosterone levels. It's that sudden surge or sudden drop that produces the emotions that lead to the behaviors. So if you're um, a high prestige guy and everybody already thinks well of you and defers to you, um, you don't need testosterone rushes to make you do things to get noticed because you already have that. But the crushing humiliation that the marginalized guy feels is accompanied by this drop in testosterone levels that's really unpleasant, and that triggers a lot of the negative emotions. So it's not the absolute level, but it's the types of changes that the guy experiences. And when the marginalized guy does something that makes him feel dominant, people are begging for their life in front of him, and he's got a powerful weapon in his hands, that can be a, a very intoxicating experience for a guy that never feels anything like that. Wow. Okay. So, Frank, we're just about out of time. What, what type of take-home message would you like to share, given your research, your experience, when we talk about the male mass shooter? 
Well, I think one of the things we have to do is acknowledge the fact that males are who they are uh, and that they are predisposed to um, physical violence more than women are, especially men of a certain age. And um, in the social sciences in general, and in psychology in particular, there's been a resistance to thinking about any sort of biological link to behavior because it's been tainted by all kinds of racist, eugenicist stuff in the past. And I understand why people have that sort of reaction. But to pretend like that is not a factor and to just start talking about video games and mental health and to talk about violent behavior as if it has nothing to do with the biology of individuals, it's not helpful. It doesn't, you know, uh, sometimes people will say, well, if you say it's biological, what you're saying is it's okay and that it's all right for men to go out and kill people because that's boys will be boys. Well, no. Uh, if we find out a disease has some sort of genetic basis, we don't just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, it's genetic. I guess we just let people die of it. We feel like we have learned something useful that will help us deal with it more effectively. So I think that's the model that we need to use when we think about violence. I want to thank you, Frank, for your wisdom, your research. You know, any step we take toward understanding young men and the tragedy of mass shootings is a very important one. And I know you were on many programs today and sharing your wisdom. So I thank you so much for coming on Psych Up Live. Thank you. This was the best part of my day, Suzanne. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this in any prior show as a podcast on my house site, my website, and on just about every podcast platform, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. Um, this will be a podcast by 6 p.m. tonight. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please be safe. Thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.